my first sexual experience blew my mind and sent me into a tailspin that would affect me for the next 40 years. But then finding compassion for an eight-year-old boy who found something that shouldn't have been left around to where it could be easily found, forgiving eight-year-old Johnny was actually the catalyst that helped me forgive 55-year-old Johnny. Has your marriage been shattered by sexual betrayal? Are you wondering if it's possible to save your marriage? Or even if you want to? Your story matters, and there is hope for your marriage through Christ Jesus. Welcome to Beyond Broken Vows podcast. I'm Johnny. I'm Emily. And friends, we've been where you are. Our marriage vows were shattered by adultery fueled by pornography. But through a commitment to recovery, our faith in God, and our hope for redemption, we set out on a journey of healing. Now our marriage is better than we ever could have imagined, and we give God all the glory. On our show, we'll talk through difficult topics, infidelity, porn addiction, recovery, and more. So if you're ready to move from pain-filled todays into hope-filled tomorrows, grab your favorite beverage and spend a little time with us. Marriage is redeemed. Hearts renewed. On Beyond Broken Vows podcast. Hello, and welcome back for another episode of Beyond Broken Vows podcast. Today's topic is grief. But before we get to that, I just want to spend a few minutes talking over the conversations that we had with our two previous guests, since we haven't had a chance to engage with our audience for the last two episodes, personally. Right. right. And so we're really glad to be back with you. I was sharing with Emily earlier that with two guests back to back, I somehow felt just a little disconnected from everybody who listens. I felt the same way, even though those guests we had were fantastic. And I'm so glad they were able to come and share their wisdom with us. What a great conversation. So starting off with Elizabeth Spragans, Mm -hmm. she is a former pornographic performer and professional sex worker, as she describes herself. Emily, do you remember what was probably the most striking thing that she said? Oh my goodness. Well, we spoke to her for almost an hour. And so (laughs) there was a lot of things that she said that struck me. One of the things was her description of what pornography and the pornography industry does to children. Yes. And consumers who view pornography create that demand for more and more, uh, what does she call it? Uh, Erotica that's kind yes. of off the beaten path. Right. And the more that that is viewed, the more that they want. And then that in turn translates into things like child pornography, child trafficking, yes, human trafficking, those things that are just such an abomination. I mean, right. really all of it is an abomination to the Lord. But when it affects the innocent children of our world, it's so disgusting and horrific. So that was one of those things. And I know she didn't really explain it in detail, but I had done my own research on the topic and and it is very heartbreaking, heart-wrenching stuff. And um, it just makes me want to stop that industry in its tracks all the more. The other thing that really struck me was just her eagerness to learn about what Jesus wants her to do, yes. what he says and how to live. She was so very vulnerable, wasn't she? She was. Very transparent and willing to just allow herself to be herself. Yes. And, you know, she didn't sugarcoat anything, but she also didn't pretend to know more than she did. And just as a new believer, I felt that joy of her excitement. Yes, she was very excited. And as I said in the episode, that's really what it's about. 
and there's no need for her to ever apologize for being that excited. This episode did come with a disclaimer and a trigger warning. It did. And we understand that there may have been folks who maybe decided to not listen because we were going to have a former porn performer on our episode, and we completely understand it. But we felt that it was really necessary to have her on there. First of all, she's such a delightful person. But second of all, if we ignore these issues in our culture, especially one that has hit our home through what I brought into it, that's just denial. We're going to talk a little bit about denial later with respect to the grief process But denial in this case is the refusal to accept the reality of something that is painful or difficult. And so we understand that. And we did these back-to-back porn-related guest spots. And that takes us to the Garinos. Yes, the Garinos. What a cute couple. Becca and Manny. They're just such a wonderful couple. And one thing that struck me in this conversation with them that kind of just stuck with me the whole time, I'm so excited about what they're doing. Because they're so young. Yes. In my recovery group, we are dominated by men who didn't get it, who got caught or didn't understand the destructive nature to it until they were into their 50s or later. Yes. Until their lives had just come crumbling down. And the Garinos, they are attacking it on the front side of life, so to speak. They're either in their late 20s or in their early 30s. And I'm so excited that they're doing it because now they can start to speak to a younger generation who is getting in deeper than even our generation did because it comes on them so early and so quickly with the access through their phones and screens. Yes, so much more available nowadays. So do you remember about the Agrinos? What was it about them that highlighted for you? It was great that they were such a team. This is what their mission is, is to help people break free from pornography and do it as a team. Yes. They're each other's allies. They're there working it together. Becca was, of course, very hurt by what Emmanuel was doing. And it was a very painful process at the beginning. Yes. But she was willing to see that he needed help. Right. And she was willing to offer that help right. unconditionally, you know, that unconditional love and support that she had vowed. And so it was really refreshing to see a young couple be so committed to yes. their covenant. Absolutely. And I know that you came alongside me when we really started to unfold the nature of my addiction. We had spoken in an earlier episode that it almost seemed a little too convenient. Okay, now I'm an addict. I'm sick. And this wasn't really my fault. But as we really started to unfold the truth that there is an addiction there that I couldn't shake and I couldn't do it, I'm especially glad, like you said, over the team aspect Because in my recovery program, there are lots of husbands whose wives aren't there for them. They're saying, this is your thing. You did this. You need to fix it. And I certainly understand their pain. I don't want to diminish that by saying that they're being lesser of a wife. They've already been hurt so much by the reality of this being in their marriage, but it probably makes it a little more difficult to recover and to move forward when you just shift it over to one person and say, you need to go clean your mess up. Right. Our hope is that maybe in time, as those messes do start cleaning up, that the wives can come back along after they've had some healing as well. Yes, that's definitely something that we hope that we can convey is that It is unjust. It's not something we ever wanted in our marriage. 
Yet we have a covenant that said for better, for worse. That's right. And this has definitely been the worst up to this point. Right. <laughs> and so, yes, being able to see the other person and empathize, it, it just makes all the difference. Absolutely. So we normally associate grief with the death and loss of someone we love. And we grieve the loss of something that we're emotionally attached to, like a job or home. But there's also a loss that occurs through betrayal. With this type of loss come the very same emotions that are common to losing someone or something dear to us. Right. After sexual betrayal, the loss of the relationship you thought you had can trigger the grieving process. Finding out about your spouse's hidden sexual behavior can be one of the most shocking betrayals that you'll ever go through. And the experience of being lied to and manipulated, it compounds that trauma and it can even intensify the grief. Yes, that's true. Grief in any situation is very painful and it takes time and courage to process through. So today we're going to look at grief through the lens of sexual betrayal and marriage. But before we do that, Johnny, would you pray for us? Absolutely. Father, we thank you so much for giving us this time together, not just Emily and I, because we get to have the conversation, but also to those who are listening, that Lord, you would open up the ears and the hearts of those who need to hear anything in here that would be helpful, anything, Lord, that would let them know that they're not alone and that this isn't strange and that they're not crazy. We pray, Father, for your message, your words, and your comfort to go out through this recording to those who are listening, Yes, that you would heal them through the words, or at least give them a place where their healing can begin. So, Father, today we ask your Holy Spirit to be in us and through us and among us here. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this topic. It's so needed. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so as is our habit, we like to take the topic and define it. Yes, I'm a little bit of a word nerd. It uh, always helps me so much to define a word when I don't fully understand it. So today's definition, of course, we're just going to define grief. Grief is an anguished experienced after a significant loss, usually a physical death of a loved one. Usually, yes, we do associate that with the, the loss of a loved one. But as I dug a little further, I found the Latin root word, which is gravis, G-R-A-V-I-S, gravis, which just means weighty. So the definition that we draw out of that is grief is a heavy, oppressive sadness. As we talk through the grieving process today, we can frame it in this idea that we have this very heavy sadness on us mm -hmm. and it can feel like an enormous weight. How do we get out from underneath it? Right. There are five stages of grief. I think that's common knowledge nowadays. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is the one who outlined these stages and the acronym for that is DABDA. DABDA is denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Yes. And so we're going to just go through these one by one and talk a little bit about them and what it really means and how we can move through them because we can't skip them. Right. We can't ignore grief. It's going to come back around yes. at some point. Some people do successfully ignore the grieving process. Sometimes I have seen or heard of cases where folks like after the loss of a loved one, they'll get really busy mm -hmm. and... That's denial, which is going to be our first stage that Emily's going to lead us into. 
but it just forestalls the inevitable. Right. It's coming back. Yes. <laughs> you can only avoid it for so long. That's correct. So yes, the first stage is denial. And that's where you're saying to yourself, this can't be happening to me. You're in such shock at that point. And I remember when you confessed your infidelity to me, I felt like it was all surreal. Yeah. It almost felt like I was outside of my body and watching me on the couch listening right. to you. I get this vision and you tell me if I'm right or wrong as I'm starting to unfold the depth of my depravity to you. You know, in the movies, they show this thing where things get a little spinny and then all of a sudden the room elongates and, right. you know, this... <laughs> that long hallway and yes. you can't get to the end of it. <laughs> yes, it was kind of like that. I just got a tunnel vision and, you know, I think that's probably the amygdala effect right. that I was experiencing too. Just your body just goes into this shock and you just feel like this isn't happening. This this can't be true. This is not my life. This is not my story. No, no, right. no. Right. <laughs> so that denial stage is usually pretty short. It goes into the next stage pretty quickly, which is anger. Right. But I wanted to just bring out this verse that we had found from 1 Peter 4.12. And this is from the message version. It's just a little bit of a reassurance that even though you're in this denial stage, that you're not alone. And it says, friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. Don't you love that last little statement? Yes, with glory just around the corner. Yes. That's such a hopeful thing. Yes, we're in the pit of despair at this moment, but there is a glimmer of hope. Right. There's always a glimmer of hope because it says that Jesus experienced everything that we're going through, and we know that he is right here with us in it. Right, absolutely. While we're looking for the hope, and we always want to bring out a message of hope in the end, but we also don't want to belittle the painful process that must be gone through. Right. So that leads us into our next one. The A in Dabda is anger. When we're coming from the aspect of sexual betrayal, Anger can show up in two forms. It can be anger at the other person who betrayed you. It's easy to see how that's possible. And yes, that makes sense. Yes. But you can also be angry with yourself. Right. Anger says, how could I let this happen? Yeah, that's when you're angry with yourself. You're like, what did I do to cause this? Or is this my fault? Right. And then the second statement is, how could you do this to me? That's one that I remember definitely thinking when I was angry. How could you do this to me? Yes. Even though you weren't doing it to me on purpose or maliciously, it was the outcome that there was something heinous done to me. Right. And there were times that you have actually said those words to me. Yes. Because that anger just leaks out. Sometimes it leaks out. Sometimes it blows out. Right. Depending on where you are in the grieving process, that's perfectly okay. Yeah. If you don't acknowledge the emotion that you're in at the time, then we move back to denial. Right. And we're not accepting our emotions for where they are as being real or valid. Right. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do today is validate all of those difficult feelings yes, and moving through the process, they're real. They are. And they're supposed to be there. Yes. It's a very necessary journey. Yes. So we found a verse that we like to put here in Ephesians chapter four, verses 26, 27. 
In the message version, it goes like this. Go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. And don't stay angry. Do not go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. Right. What a great statement that validates anger. Yes. Isn't that wonderful? It's a God-given emotion. Absolutely. And we, especially in the church, we think that if we're angry, we're doing something wrong. Now, we can be doing something wrong. Oh, sure, we can. But we had talked about on one of our previous episodes about the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Right. Revenge Revenge anger. anger. You owe me. Mm-hmm. Yes. But being angry at injustice is perfectly fine with God right. because he is angry at injustice himself. Yes. And this is a grievous injustice. Yes, it is. As we move on into the third stage of the grieving process, which is bargaining, there's a lot of movement back and forth between bargaining and anger. Mm -hmm. As we're asking the questions, how could I let this happen? Bargaining says, if only I would have. Right. I had a lot of bargaining at the beginning because I just couldn't wrap my mind around what really had happened and how, how that could happen. I know that was a question that we talked about. How did you let this happen? How did I let this happen? God, how did you let this happen? <laughs> that was a question on the forefront of my mind. And yes, I started bargaining with God and saying things like, if I had just been more direct with him, with my questions, when I felt a little uneasy with something, if I was not so willing to protect him from himself and to really just let the consequences of his actions materialize instead of protecting him like he was my child. And you had some questions too, some bargaining my, questions, didn't you? Yeah, there was definitely some bargaining on my part. So in bargaining, my questions as an eight-year-old little boy sounded a lot like, if only I would have told somebody. I could have headed this off in the very beginning, but instead I let the shame and the guilt take over and I hid because I needed approval. Also, bargaining later on, even in my recovery, was understanding that if only I would have had the courage again to tell somebody in order to get real help before I really did some damage to our marriage. Yes, but I do want to say that when you were eight, there was really no way that you had the capacity to know what to do and to reach out and be responsible for what yes. had happened. Yes. The interesting part is that when I was going back in time to figure this out, I got angry at that little boy. I got mad at each other for not speaking out. And I had to go through a process of forgiving eight-year-old Johnny. And then having compassion that says just what you said. How do you deal with this when you're eight? What have you been given in life that equips you to take on this kind of emotion? My first sexual experience blew my mind and sent me into a tailspin that would affect me for the next 40 years. Right. So it took some time to go back and realize that First of all, I had to acknowledge my anger with that young Johnny that, that didn't tell somebody. How come you didn't tell somebody? Right. But then finding compassion for an eight-year-old boy who found something that shouldn't have been left around to where it could be easily found, and then being scared about talking about what he had just seen. 
I'm really glad that you were able to go back and find that compassion because that was a real breakthrough for you, wasn't it? It was. It was actually doing that, forgiving eight-year-old Johnny, was actually the catalyst that helped me forgive 55-year-old Johnny. Right. Yeah. It's powerful. It was. So the next stage of grief is depression. And that's actually different from clinical depression. It's really just like you said in the beginning, a heavy sadness. It's all consuming. Right. It feels like this cloak of darkness over you that you just can't shed. It just makes you sink lower and lower with the weight of it. And it's often the longest stage of the grieving process. Right. That sadness sticks around for quite a long time. Yet it's also the first stage of hope. And why is that? Well, that's because you're not in denial anymore and you're not bargaining anymore. So when you get to that sadness or that depression stage, acceptance is right around the corner. And there's hope that this is not going to last forever. Right. Strangely enough, in the depression, what you're accepting is the fact that this is real. Yeah, it's real. You're not denying that anymore. So Emily, how did depression work its way out through you? Well, I hid, basically. The whole grieving process can cause isolation. And I hid from the world. I didn't want to see people. I didn't want to do my job. I really let that go to the wayside. I just didn't want to have to put on any kind of happy face to be around people. I didn't have the energy to do that. So I right. I just really wanted to stay home and hunker down and just lick my wounds, you know, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, that sadness, there was sadness that was underlying everything. But as time went on, that underlying sadness started to lift. And then there would just be periods of sadness whenever a trigger would occur. When I looked through pictures and it struck me of all the loss that occurred right. through that double life that you were leading and that some of the things that I saw in those pictures weren't actually real on your part. And so those kinds of events would cause another bout of sadness. But over time, that cloak of sadness was able to come off and I just had bouts of sadness. Hopefully people don't stay in that sadness too long because that can turn into clinical depression. Right. And you also went through a depressive phase in your recovery, right, Johnny? I did. As a matter of fact, as I look back and try to put a time frame to it, I think that my depressive stage by itself probably lasted a couple of years because you were describing as a way to want to hide. And COVID, when we were all on lockdown, first of all, put us in a place where we had to isolate. Right. And then when everything started lifting and restrictions were coming off and people started moving around again, I didn't want to. I did not want to engage the world. We put a gate across the front of our property for security purposes. And that gate became very metaphoric for my depression. I wanted to just shut the gate, stay behind it, and not leave. I'm rebuilding a life with you. I have this beautiful property that we live on. We have the animals that bring its own sense of joy. I had everything I needed, so I never wanted to leave. And that phase lasted a long time. And to be quite transparent, it started to lift for real, like last November, where I had some conversations with God about some of the ways that I was feeling. 
I was feeling a pull back to ministry again, because as I was recovering, my ministry leaders had seen demonstrated recovery and things that have been restored. And they were kind of moving me back into a place where I was doing more active ministry. And I didn't want to. And I remember having this conversation in the helmet of my motorcycle while me and another one of my ministry leaders were riding to California for a funeral. Inside my helmet, I'm just talking with God, and I'm hearing these voices about wanting to go back into ministry, and I flat out told God, I don't want to. I do not want to go back into ministry anymore. I was a terrible person when I was in ministry because I was still equating my actions with the ministry work that I had done, even though some very wonderful spirit-led God things happened that I was involved in, right. even in the middle of my acting out, in the middle of my addiction. But God's return question back to me when I was telling him that I didn't want to go back into ministry, he asked, does that really matter if you want to or not? And I got a few more miles down the road alone in my helmet, and my reply back to him was, I suppose it doesn't matter what I think. You've restored my life. You've given me life again. How can I not share that hope? And I got to say that at that time, podcasting was not even on my radar. No, not mine either. But God made it very clear that he intended to move me back into ministry and that he had purchased my story yes. by his blood. Yes. And he was going to put his calling card down and say, it's time. Right. Yes. And boy, did he ever. So here we are. Yes, here we are. We can always find a scripture that gives us hope, can't we? Yes. The word is full of hope. And Psalm 42, 11 says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him my Savior, and my God. David is so good at expressing through the Psalms, at being present in the moment and understanding his emotions and expressing them to God. He he's so good at that. And he's asking all the right questions. He's asking the questions inside of himself. Why do I feel this way? And these are the conversations that we get to have with God because he's waiting for us to ask these questions. Yes, because he's been there. And our hope is in God. Absolutely. We couldn't have done this without God in the center. No. So, Johnny, what is the final stage of grief that we're going to talk about? The final stage of grief is acceptance. Acceptance has statements like this. This is real. This is me. But I'm ready to move forward. Yes. But this is also not being okay with the loss that you experienced or the violation that occurred. But you're just saying it's real and I'm ready to move forward. Right. And I just wanted to mention that these are five stages, and there is an acronym that goes in order of these stages, right. but grief is not necessarily linear. Not at all. It's more like spaghetti, right? you got a plate of spaghetti, and it's all intertwined. And, right. and that's that's what I experienced in my grief, going through the first few and then jumping back to anger and then finally getting that acceptance. But now, even though I have acceptance of this is my story, I didn't want this story, but it's mine, and this is real, I still get angry. Right. I still have sadness, not in denial anymore, but this kind of goes in and out of each stage of grief. And it can, you know, it takes a while. Grief is a long process, and 
it's a lonely process because most of our grieving is done in private by ourselves. Right. Fortunately, we were able to grieve together on many occasions. Yes. We did find a place where we found it more comfortable for us to join together, even in our anger and our depression and all of that, that just being together, somehow we knew that we were going to make it through. Once we had made the decision that we were going to stay married, it was really just a matter of staying the course and working together through all the difficult processes. My acceptance finally worked its way out through accepting the fact that not only am I truly an addict, and I have to make you aware that I'm an addict in the sense that you can never trust me again, right? Right. I had to accept that truth. I had to accept that my only hope in that is to be trustworthy every day. Right. But I also had to accept the fact that I did all of those things. They became so heinous to me that I really just wanted to put them away and forget that they ever happened. And so my acceptance was, nope, I can't put them away. I have to remember that that was me. It's actually very, very important that I remember that that was me. I don't bludgeon myself any longer because the shame and the guilt is gone. Because when you questioned me over and over and over again, I told the truth and you know it took a long time to get it out, but we finally got it all out. Now it's out. I don't want that back in the can again, right? Right. So we're going to continue to work rigorous honesty in my feelings, in my everyday life, if I have triggers, you know, so that's my life now. Right. I have to live it that way. So we found a verse that I've always liked. This has been a good one that I have leaned on quite a bit. It's found in Psalm 30, and it's verse 5b out of the NIV. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. It's a great way to understand as you go through the process of grieving and you move out into acceptance and you're ready to move forward. There's an old adage that says that the night is darkest right before the dawn. Mm -hmm. And that is so true. God's mercies are new every morning. Yes. So those are the five stages of grief. But there's also some other things that come along with the grieving process. There are physical, mental, and emotional effects that happen during grieving. Right. And I know that I experienced those. I'm sure that you did too. And there's many, but we're just going to highlight a few. There's fatigue, confusion, loss of appetite, trouble sleeping, um, heart rate can go up, just an overall stress. Right. Now, Emily, you mentioned heart rate. And when we were working on putting this together for today, you remembered really where this played out. Tell us about that. Right. Well... We donate plasma. We do that on a weekly basis. And I remember after, even on the days when I thought I felt okay enough to go into public, that I would go to the center and they take your vitals every time before you are allowed to donate your plasma. So they would take my blood pressure and my heart rate. And there were many times my pulse was too high. The rate was too fast. Right. And they kicked me out for that day. Right. And that really upset me because I didn't get compensated for my time or my donation. And I would come home sometimes so angry and so hurt. This wasn't my fault. Right. And that you had done this thing that's right. causing now 
me to have an effect in my daily life that I didn't expect. Right. It's literally adding insult to injury. There you go. Yes. So, and then stress, you know, I felt like I aged a lot during that time. Yes. I would look in the mirror and I was just sometimes a little bit shocked at the way my face looked drawn and pale. And I just really felt older. (laughs) And not just because you had chosen a younger acting out partner. I just felt the grief and the and that stress that it brings on was just aging me. Right. How did the fatigue and the confusion work out for you during this process? Well, I actually didn't really sleep hardly at all the first two weeks after you told me about this. I had nightmares all the time, so I couldn't sleep and I didn't want to sleep because if I closed my eyes, then yes. the nightmares came. So I was exhausted. And if you don't get enough sleep, of course, your brain doesn't function properly. And so I had some confusion. I forgot where I put things. I forgot what day it was. You know, there was just all of that kind of thing going on. Yeah, it's just, it's a deal. It's, there's a lot of physical ramifications that people go through when they're grieving and they tend to not take care of themselves either. Right. They just kind of let it all go and turn into themselves and they don't take care of their bodies. I've also known many people who've gone through grief and specifically this kind of grief as well, the the sexual betrayal, that they have like these maladies that appear or they have some serious things going on with their heart or with their lungs or, you know, just they have some serious medical issues that pop up after this kind of stress. Right. So we do also want to highlight some helpful habits that we can employ to sort of mitigate or to minimize at least some of these effects of the grieving process. Yes. So basically it's connection and communication. Right. Those two things combat that isolation. And I just wanted to say that even in my recovery program, I learned this and strangely enough, it, it started to make sense because we're tempted to believe that the opposite of addiction would be sobriety, because that's really the way our culture and everybody looks at it, you know, kind of just just stop doing it. If you don't do the thing, then you won't be an addict any longer. But actually, the opposite of addiction is connection because of the isolation that gets experienced when you're acting out. But you can also experience that isolation in the grieving process. And so it works out the same way. Connect with people. Yes. Connect and communicate. Right. Really express what you're feeling. Don't hide it inside. Don't push it down and ignore it. You really need to find people to talk to, either your spouse or a friend or a pastor or, you know, somebody that you paid to speak to, but you just really need to get it out. And then that connection, you know, you don't necessarily connect with everybody you communicate with, but connection makes you feel that you're not alone. Right. And so as you find that you're actually in a position where you are talking with somebody who is grieving their loss, one of the biggest helps that I had learned during this process is don't offer advice. That's the worst thing that you can do. Right. The person that who is experiencing the loss, the bereft, often feels judged and or misunderstood because they do feel alone. Yes. And how could anybody possibly understand what's going on? What could you possibly have to say to me? And so words of advice, although well-intended from a friend, can be quite painful 
and actually trigger some anger. But there are some helpful things that we can say to those who are grieving. Right. What are some of the best things we could say? That we understand that it does take time, but this will pass. You know that adage, time heals all wounds? Right. We want to get mad about that adage when we're in the middle of it. Right. But it is true. It will pass. The anger, the pain, the sadness, it will lessen and lessen and lessen until you look back and go, wow, I do not feel that way anymore. And we hope that with us having gone through the grieving process, as we speak to our listeners, that you will truly hear us when we say to you, this will pass. The grief does disappear. But I would actually encourage you, don't let the betrayal fully disappear from your life. Understand it for what it is. And now this is part of your life. That's also part of acceptance. But understand it's going to be a part of you now for the rest of your life. Everything that happens to you and everything that you do makes you who you are today and can make you a better person tomorrow if you learn from it. Amen. There's a saying in recovery, as, as you guys have probably already picked up, there's always a saying in recovery, but your recovery is only as good as the memory of your last acting out. Explain that a little bit. Well, if you tuck it away and pretend like it didn't exist or like it didn't happen, you're going to not learn from history because there's another saying, it says, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We have seen this over and over in our world history, American history. Yes. And personal history, if we don't learn from it. So we have to hold on to that to some degree in our acceptance of the reality that says, yep, that happened to me. Did it suck? Yep. Do I want to go through it again? Nope. But it is actually good for me to remember that this is now me. The new you. And it doesn't have to control me for my future. Better yet, don't say anything at all. Yes. That is so good. Words aren't usually necessary when you're trying to comfort a grieving person. We've heard again another adage, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But sometimes people are so well-intentioned out of their love and their compassion, they feel like they have to say something. Mm -hmm. So as we read in the book of Job, Job had the best friends in the world. Now, if you've read the book of Job, you're probably going, huh? <laughs> well, I'll explain it. For the first seven days, it says that Job's friends came and they sat in the dirt with him. Job had put on sackcloth and covered himself in ashes. And he's begging to God, what is going on? And his three friends came and sat with him in the dirt. But where did they go wrong? Well, on the eighth day, they started talking. And it got really bad after that. Yes. They started accusing him of doing wrong. They were accusing him of not, not having faith, not having faith or even being sinful. Right. It must be your sin that brought this on you. And in the end, as Job is working this out, if you really want to read the grieving process, read the book of Job. It's like more than 40 chapters, but it's worth it. I think that you have to get into all the words to feel all of Job's emotions, to understand that he's truly working through all of it. But in the end, he did not sin. He may have had some harsh words toward God, and God set that right in the end with Job, and more importantly, with the friends that were making accusations about 
Job's misbehaviors that brought his sin on him, that brought that destruction on him, right? Much the same with you, betrayed. There's no way that any of this was your fault. But haven't we talked just in the recent past that some churches in our past history have sided with the man in an adultery situation where it said, if the woman had only been giving more sex to her husband, right? Mm -hmm. What a grave injustice. Yes, absolutely. So in recap, let's put all this together. The grieving cycle is summed up in the acronym of DABDA, D-A-B-D-A. There's denial. Denial says this can't be happening to me. There's anger. Anger has statements like, how could I let this happen? Or how could you do this to me? And then bargaining. Bargaining has statements that look like, if I only would have. And then there is depression. Depression is that heavy sadness. It's a weight that you feel that you can't get out from under. But it is the first stage that gives hope. Why? Because you're facing the reality of it for the first time in the process. And it's often the longest stage. So be patient as you work through it. Understand that it can just take some time and allow it to have its time. Don't try to force your way out of it. And the last one being acceptance. Acceptance says, this is me. This is my life. And I'm ready to move forward from here. It does not say that I'm okay with the fact that I was violated or that I lost someone or something very significant in my life. And remember, this process is not linear. Discouragement is naturally going to be there. But remember, this will pass. It will get better. So don't lose hope. Emily, this has been such a good discussion. And it's certainly not exhaustive. There's no way that you and I talking through our experience could have all the answers. Right. Nor do we intend to have all the answers, but we want to highlight it as it really looked in our lives. And maybe some others will feel similar situations that they can resonate with. Yes. And hopefully they can see that there is light at the end of the tunnel. If it could happen for us, it can happen for anyone. Right. With God at the center. Absolutely. Emily, so as we start to wrap up today's episode, would you pray for us, please? Yes. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this grieving process. I believe that you are the author of it because you know that these emotions that you have created in us can be very strong and very overpowering. Yet you have given us tools and a way to move through them. As long as we surrender to you, we can survive this. And we can not just survive it, we can thrive. Yes. But this grieving process is a painful one, and it takes a lot of time. And we know that you understand that. You had to go through grief when you lost your son. And you grieve every day when you see the destruction in the lives of people around the world. So thank you for your gift of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy. We just ask that those who are listening will feel your presence, know that they're not alone, and that grief has a purpose. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we go, we just want to encourage you to be gentle with yourself. Yes. This is a difficult process. It's a good idea to practice some self-care. We're not going to go through what that looks like, but for every person, it's different. But really try to take care of yourself. And most of all, stick close to Jesus. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're feeling that you are alone in your grief and that you don't have anybody that you can talk to, 
we would love to come alongside and pray for you. Please write us at emily at beyondbrokenvows.com or johnny at beyondbrokenvows.com. So until next time, marriage is redeemed, hearts renewed on Beyond Broken Vows podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. And before you go, if this podcast encouraged you and you're feeling some hope for today, please share this show with someone else you know who is going through a similar situation and needs to know that they're not alone. One of the best ways you can help us reach more people is to leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. And as always, we would love to hear questions from you that we can answer in our midweek show. Just email us at support at beyondbrokenvows.com. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.